Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am in some uh, snowy climb that uh, is part of our series of undisclosed locations, also at an undisclosed location. Actually, one of our mobile units is Corey Shockey, somewhere in (laughs) California, um, and uh, in D.C., actually in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have David Sanger of the New York Times, and we have Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. And at another D.C. undisclosed location, we have Susan Hennessy of the Lawfare blog and all sorts of recent television appearances. And Susan, I'd like to start with you. We haven't had the chance to do a Deep State radio episode since the Michael Wolff book came out. It seems like that was about a year and a half ago. Um but it was, actually, it was actually just a couple of days ago. Uh, and this has caused quite a, a stir. And yet nothing in the book seems to be that new, with the exception of the Steve Bannon assertion of treason, um, which, of course, seems like a big deal. But, but why do you think it's caused such a, a, a ruckus? You know, I don't know. I had sort of the same reaction to it, which is that there's not much new here in terms of, you know, the president's kind of unhinged mental state. I think the thing that's causing um, so much consternation is that sort of the call is coming from inside the House this time. It's sort mm. of people that are sort of so close into the president. They're on the record a lot of times, or at least uh, maybe they didn't realize they were on the record, but they are named. And so I think that that's like, it's sort of it's pulling the curtain back on the great and powerful odds and sort of saying, hey, it's not really that we're divided between people who think Trump is crazy and people who don't think Trump is crazy. Everybody thinks Trump is crazy. It's sort of it, we're divided between people who are willing to say that out loud and publicly and people who aren't. Other than Stephen Miller and uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and possibly Donald Trump Jr., David, are you aware of any large camps of people who who think the president is in possession of his faculties? Give me some time on that question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, think well, the, I, I think the question the question about Donald Trump has always been sort of twofold. Um, the first is how much of this is an act, and how much of it is the real Donald Trump. And if it's an act, he manages to keep it going even when you're in private conversation and and so forth, which is why I think you're seeing so many of these uh, reports. And then I think the second question is, um, can somebody 
who is, you know, dismissed or portrayed in a book like this as completely unable to pay attention to detail, considers it a long work day to get into the office at 11 and, you know, get out at 4, which some people call executive time. I call it Rothkopf time. Um, but Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, – uh, is somebody like that, you know, capable of being president? And I guess one of the interesting questions is how is somebody like that capable of running a uh, real estate operation which had its ups and certainly its downs? And how is somebody like that able to put together the discipline, if you can call it that, to get elected president of the United States? And that, you know, sort of remains one of the mysteries because as we know, it's a pretty it, – it requires a pretty high degree of organization and attention to do that and it would also require a high degree of attention and organization to do that if you were seeking the help of a foreign power. And that's the disconnect here right now between the portrayal of a president who couldn't organize a one-car funeral and the portrayal of a president who was sitting there colluding with Vladimir Putin. Well, I guess is is that really a disconnect, Corey, or is that more, um, you know, in one case the president is, you know, co-author of this uh, collusion, in the other case he's just a puppet and he's getting played because he's a rube. Yeah, I I think it's the latter category. I don't think you have to believe that President Trump is, uh, you know, is a genius and in order to believe that the Russians are making good use of him. And I also don't think you have to be a genius to be elected president, because I think David perhaps underestimates the momentum that the party structure gives for a candidate. Uh, so so I'm, with the, uh, I'm with the Rube category description of the president, not the either David's belief that, that these two things don't match, or that the president has to be somehow an awful lot smarter than he is. When David was talking, one thing struck me, that we keep looking for um, explanations in which, you know, the president has no attention span and stuff. Has anyone seen any evidence that he does have an attention span? That is, has anybody, does anyone know of anyone who's had a conversation with him where the president actually knew the details of a policy he was advocating or legislation. No, quite the or opposite. Or does he just wave his hand? Yeah, quite the opposite. Uh, I mean, I spent last year, or 2016, about three, three and a half hours with him on interviews, and it was very hard. That, to put, that puts you about a half an hour ahead of Michael Wolf, by the way. That, that's true. And I actually have tapes of the interviews and transcripts that we published, which is more than he has done here. Um, but uh, it was very hard to keep him on subject, and he had no command of the details. And when you go ask his aides, they'll tell you what a great learning curve he's been on this year, which we have – uh, reason to doubt. Corey, I would um, agree with you heartily about the uh, about the party uh, structure that goes behind. But remember, until you got pretty close to the convention, the party hated him and was doing everything it could to kill him. And so while in an ordinary time, I would be perfectly willing to believe that, 
Um, this is not a case where the where the party got behind the candidate early on and decided that they were going to make up for his shortcomings. Now, Evelyn, you know, one of the things that um, you hear a lot of, you know, and I watched a lot of uh, I had a lot of executive time uh, over the weekend. Um, <laughs> you mean you took a lot of naps? Yeah, <laughs> there was some of that. But uh, but I was watching a lot of these Sunday shows and I was watching the news, you know, about these these things. And everybody was like, well, you know, this is this is an open secret in Washington. Everybody who knows anything about Trump knows that the guy is, you know, he's not with it. He's not smart. He doesn't read. He's a little bit unhinged. Um, and and, you know, the reality is everybody I've talked to who has contact with him um, says things like David just did, you know, rather diplomatically, I thought, in this last case or, or worse. And and I'm just wondering, you know, you're in the midst, you're in the flow, you worked in DOD. On that side of the equation, what do you hear? Well, it's interesting because you guys started off talking about the fact that what was – or Susan started off saying, you know, what's interesting is that this is coming from within the House and we're getting the name. So – I was hearing from reporters I won't name who traveled with Trump down to Mar-a-Lago a year ago who told me about him telling a story about buying Mar-a-Lago three times in in succession. So <laughs> he repeated the story. The third time, actually, he didn't complete it. His aides pulled him away. Um, that's off the record, um, meaning, you know, I won't say who, who told me the story. But, you know, the difference in this book is that this guy, Wolf, will tell you who told him the stories. And there, I have another example of someone who worked in the White House, I won't mention also names, um, who also gave a characterization of the president that led me to believe that they were either being flippant or they really thought the president was a little bit off his rocker. Um, th- those are not the words that were used. I just want to keep it a little loose here. <laughs> but the point is that, uh, you know, Wolf is going on the record. I think I want to add to the the question about whether he was a rube or a genius or what have you a little bit by adding the element of the deep state, because to the extent that there is a deep state, it's a really good thing. <laughs> there is this bureaucracy and there are these experts running around this town who are making government work, even though we have a completely dysfunctional president who's not really functioning as an executive directing the government. However, underneath him is this bureaucracy that does respond to the cabinet officials who are competent and capable. And in addition to that, I suspect, without knowing much about the Trump organization, that it also functioned like that, that that, that there were competent, capable people who made it possible for Donald Trump to function. And those are the people that basically got him somehow you know, to the finish line uh, with or without the Republican Party. Although I think we'll find out that the Republican Party was key, obviously, at the end. And we don't know what role they played also with the Russians. But I think that that even though the the man at the top, you know, may or may not be a genius or, or probably isn't a genius, there is there is a structure under him first facilitated by the fact that he was a wealthy individual so he could afford to build this structure and now facilitated by the fact that he runs our government or he's been elected to the head of it. All this sort of creates in my mind a kind of an image, Susan, of Trump, you know, this kind of big sucker marching out onto the stage and like in, you know, you know, in a cartoon where the, like the, you know, the, 
animals look at the the one that they're going to eat and it turns into a turkey or a, or it has a big sucker for its head they all look at him and they go ah yeah this is the opportunity and in goes Corey Lewandowski and in goes Paul Manafort and in goes Vladimir Putin and in goes you know all the you know including you know complete imbeciles like Carter Page going well nobody would hire me but this idiot might and you know he was he was kind of a user magnet and that you know, everybody was trying to get their way. And the, one of the reasons that the book and, 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 and by the way, Susan Glasser's good article on the foreign policy process sort of describe what is a snake pit is that it's not, it's not tr- Trump. It's that everybody around him is such a nasty piece of work. Yeah, look, first of all, I, I do relish the uh, the image of Trump as like a giant drumstick running around. Um, and, you know, he's, he's obviously He's the right kind of, color and complexion. <laughs> right. um, you know, he obviously attracts these kind of amoral, opportunistic individuals. I think one thing that even they failed to sort of fully appreciate, actually, there are two things that they failed to appreciate. Um, one is what was Trump's inability to separate himself from the office of the presidency, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have any sense that sort of the president of the United States is one thing that you're supposed to do certain things in that role that kind of have nothing to do with your own ego and even your own sort of limited political interests. Um, and so I, I think that, that they couldn't, um, they didn't anticipate sort of how disruptive that would be. The other element, and I think this plays out well for some people and less well for others, whenever you're looking at sort of that that opportunistic gaggle around him, is that there is one way in which Trump is incredibly shrewd, and that is understanding what's good for his own financial interests um, and his own personal interests. So I think that you know, you have sort of, you know, you, you cast off all the ethics rules, all the transparency rules, all the good governance rules, and you're left with just sort of, you know, the total kleptocracy. And if you are an opportunist that's sort of close to Trump, and the piece of the pie you want happens to not overlap with the piece of the pie that he's busily gobbling up, sure, that's fine, right? You want to drill in a national park, um, you know, sort of fill in the blank on, on how on how you're going to get your piece. The thing that I think people are, uh, some people are unhappily figuring out is that there's no honor among thieves. And so to the extent that Trump is, is operating sort of in ruthless pursuit of his own interests, if those happen to run up against the interests of even sort of his closest cronies, even the loyalists who sort of put their time in in order to get you know, to, to get their peace back out, he's perfectly comfortable sort of throwing them by the wayside. And they aren't going to be able to trick him into thinking that their interests are his interests. Because if he does have one really shrewd sense, it's knowing what's in it for Donald Trump. But that's, you know, that's a really, you know, smart insight that I think is underplayed in this. But it does come up a bit in the Wolf book, David, you know, because it talks about the fact that there was this kind of moment where before Trump is elected, everybody is like, and and by the way, there's a lot of other stuff that supports this. Everybody's like, well, you know, you know, we're not going to win, but we're going to cash in on this. And then the moment after they get elected and, you know, you follow the Mike Flynn saga, it's not, you know, uh, you know, let's sell out America. It's let's cash in on America. 
And the, so the whole narrative throughout this whole thing is really a narrative of a guy seeing how he can monetize running for president. And when he unexpectedly becomes president, continues to figure out how he can monetize being the president. And that it's not really, you know, I mean, you know, could the Russians help with that? Fine. If somebody else could help with that, fine. But that the real sort of meat of this thing ends up being the deals and the violations of the ethics laws and, you know, the, what Flynn did and so on and so forth. And that maybe that's the subtext. What do you think, David? I don't think it's the subtext. I think it's a text. And it's why Michael Wolff's book has resonated despite its factual errors because it matches up with everything you've read in the New York Times and the Washington Post and seen on CNN in the past and year. And MSNBC. And MSNBC. Yes, absolutely. So um, – yeah, no, like I see there's a little can, divide in this group here between the CNN talking heads and the MSNBC <laughs> talking heads. Right. Because <laughs> what is – what does all the reporting show you? That he wouldn't release his taxes, that he held on to um, the Trump Hotel and that it is enriching uh, members of his family, that he's selling tickets down at Mar-a-Lago to a um, New Year's Eve party at which it's a pretty good bet that the president will attend. So somebody who wanted to pay to play would would buy the tickets. Now, we've had other presidents who have you know showed up at at $50,000 a plate fundraisers of both parties, um, that at every step, we have seen people moving to benefit their own account in this administration. The difference between this administration and many previous administrations on this, I wouldn't include Obama's administration this where I think it was actually you know, astoundingly scandal-free by, by uh, all modern standards. But the difference is that the previous administrations made at least a token effort to hide this when they would do these transactions. Whereas in this administration, they have basically said there's nothing in the law that explicitly prohibits it. There's nothing in the law that says I should release my tax returns. There's nothing in the law that requires that we release the names of those who've come in to visit the White House or Mar-a-Lago. And they fought every effort uh, against that. And so now along comes a book that basically reconfirms everything we thought, weaves it together into a perfectly nice tale makes a lot of mistakes along the way, which undercut the credibility of the author some. But the overall tune of the book is one we've all been singing, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think I think that it is. You know, let me float in a question out here then about that, um, which is not going to win me any friends from former colleagues. Um, but, but, Corey, you know, something interesting happened Mm, around about the Clinton administration, in which I served, um, where the president, President Clinton, and his wife turned being an ex-president into a really big business. They made a lot of money uh, in a way that yeah. prior presidents had not done. They built a big enterprise. Now, honestly, I think it was an enterprise that mostly has done good things for the world. But but th we have seen something change in the character of the presidency. And by the way, you can't – I mean, whatever you can say about Barack Obama, uh, and while he is making a lot of money right now, you can't say that that seemed to infect his presidency. But something has changed about 
how we view the be- the, the 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 dividing line between public service and and amassing wealth or or courier is that not true yeah i think it is true i i think we have been going down this slide for some time right i'm homesick for harry truman who you know felt it was immoral to capitalize on having been the president of the united states to make money um and we're such a long way from that I disagree a little bit with David Sanger because he makes it sound as though, uh, you know, other administrations also did this, uh, but this one is just more flagrant about it. I think the Trump administration has been taking a wrecking ball to the norms uh, of decent behavior. So what the Trump administration has been saying is, hey, if there's not a law against it, it's fine for us to do it. And and it is it's a dramatic it's a it's a dramatic acceleration um and i think you know the clintons you're right uh seriously attempted to capitalize on it but uh not while they were in office to the same degree the trump folks feel like grifters like the as as the Wolf book makes clear, right, that what they did was uh, was figure out, hey, how can we make money off this? And so now they're making money hand over fist um, on the public on the public dime, uh, on the public's millions and millions of dollars. And and so it is problematic because it's a violation of the norm. But what I think Trump doesn't realize is that. A big part of the reason people disliked Hillary Clinton so much was precisely because of the tawdriness of capitalizing on their government time to make money. And I hope it snaps back at President Trump in exactly the same way. Yeah, and think how it'll snap. One last thing, which is that uh, the Wolf book, I think, creates the impression that the end of this administration it's going to be like the end of the movie Reservoir Dogs, where everybody turns on everybody else. And and I was enjoying that possibility until Steve Bannon came uh, came slinking back into the Trump fold and apologizing for his apathy. Yeah, well, first of all, if that doesn't work, you never know where he's going to end up. Um, before I turn uh, back to Susan, I want to ask her a question about this this possibility of Trump being interviewed by uh, by Mueller's people. Evelyn, you know, one of the problems with Trump is what I call the fog of Trump. You know, it's like, well, we could talk about his corruption all day long. And frankly, I'm shocked, really shocked that nobody talks about his corruption, except if you follow certain people on Twitter, like Richard Painter or Walter right. Schaub, who are these ethics people who are like, hey, you know, uh, maybe he shouldn't be making money <laughs> off of this. Or maybe Ivanka shouldn't be like wearing her clothes and selling them online mm-hmm. or, you know, et cetera, Kellyanne et cetera. shouldn't be, you know. Yeah, telling people to go buy them. Yeah, well, and and on and on and on. And, you know, even in the Wolf book, you know, you could get hung up on one line. But, you know, there are other scenes in the book. And one of the scenes has Trump coming back, you know, into Washington after one of these things, musing aloud about how, well, you know, you know, maybe you could be an okay person and still be in the KKK. And, you know, I'm not saying my father was in it, although his father was in it. You know, and he goes into this whole thing and you think, no, you know. 
yeah, he's he's corrupt and and yeah, he's insane and and yeah, he's he's lazy. But but don't forget the fact that he's a really really shitty person. Yes. And 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 I'm just you know how do you how do you sort through this stuff you know I think that's the part that eats at the soccer moms and kind of average Americans even in the red state I mean that's probably what we saw a little bit with the Roy Moore you know defeat uh, that for Americans this the idea that we would be like and frankly speaking our president is supposed to be someone that we might emulate at least in some way shape or form even if you didn't like Barack Obama you probably liked his marriage you probably liked him as a family man you know even if you thought that he should be less of a family man and he should be hobnobbing with people on Capitol Hill or something like that uh, you know so no president is perfect as a person or a politician but I think as Americans we like to find our our politicians and certainly our president attractive as a person or at least emulating some qualities that we would like our children and we we would like ourselves in fact to have to share and i think in the case of donald trump there's very little there that i would want to share with him maybe ambition <laughs> you know i i can't think of any other quality that he has that i find um i would like to share with him um and and i think for people raising children I, I would not mind sitting in my bed at six o'clock, surrounded by McDonald's burgers, watching TV for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a, a personal I don't characteristic. Need that, uh, need that yeah. visual. Yeah, it no, may not be a well, character trait, David. But I didn't need well, those calories. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a character defect. Um, yeah, so. The, the, turning to character defects, and there's sort of two rounds of things I want to get over here in the in the in the in the few minutes we've got. Susan, you know, as an attorney, as somebody who's been following this thing very closely, obviously every week there is some new twist in the Mueller tale or 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 some of the legal tales around this, and there has been reporting in 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 the very recent past about the idea that Trump might. Uh, that Mueller may have approached the Trump lawyers and that they're talking about Mueller uh, interviewing Trump for the for the investigation and that, you know, there's some discussion about the ground rules and so forth. And this gets us back to character because, you know, you know, Trump, I think, in one case in a civil suit, uh, I, I think David Farenthal wrote, wrote about this, you know, um, you know, in the late 80s, I think he he was interviewed for two days, and they counted 30 falsehoods. Now, it's one thing in a civil suit. It's another thing in a criminal suit. The guy's a pathological liar. It, you know, as character traits go, that's kind of the worst one you want to have on a guy who's being interviewed by a guy like Mueller, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that are important to keep in mind, and some are sort of good news, bad news, you know, I think for people who who want, uh, you know, want this to be Trump's downfall. Um, look, so sitting down with uh, with an FBI agent uh, or investigator, um, it's like being under oath. You know, so US, the 18 U.S.C. 1001 says it's a crime to lie. Um, this is what caught Michael Flynn. And so Trump doesn't just appear to be a liar. Um, he actually appears like he is incapable of telling the truth, um, even in, in circumstances in which there might be consequences for that. So this does kind of put him in a little bit of a perilous situation, um, or, or could possibly. Um, I think there's, in sort of reading the tea leaves, 
the one potentially, I don't know, negative story or, or bad news story, depending on your perspective, is the fact that Mueller is seeking to interview Trump might actually indicate that they are coming closer to the end of an investigation. Um, Usually you don't seek to interview a principal, certainly not somebody like the president of the United States, until you've pretty much got all of your ducks in a row. Um, So that might mean that sort of some of Ty Cobb and the president's sort of inner circle predictions that this might be coming to a close sooner rather than later, uh, at least with respect to things like the obstruction of justice investigation, um, you know, that that might be one indication. Now, his lawyers are going to try their damnedest to not have him sit down in the first instance. Trump has said that he's willing to do it, but you know, he says stuff all the time. So sort of, you know, we'll wait and see. Even if he does agree to sit down with Mueller's investigators, and and remember, there's no way that he can do that and be like off the record or not be a circumstance in which lying is a crime beyond sort of just his willingness to sit down is whether or not he's going to answer questions. And so one thing that we've seen um, by sort of senior officials and campaign officials uh, whenever they've been interviewed by the congressional committees, at least is that they invoke executive privilege. They invoke attorney-client privilege, not in cases in which there's actually a sort of legally plausible explanation, right? That's, that's sort of that's legally justified, but just to kind of get them out of the moment, right? They don't want to answer the question. And so Don Jr. says, there was an attorney in the room and that's attorney-client privilege and that's, he doesn't have to answer. So I think it's, it's plausible um, that Trump will play similar games, assert sort of, laughably broad executive privilege, assert incredibly broad sort of national security uh, rationales for not being willing to answer questions, because he knows that the only way for someone to challenge him on that is very, very complex, you know, federal court proceedings. Um, So I'm sort of taking it, you know, I think, I think it's more significant that it looks like Mueller is seeking to interview him than, than sort of any speculation about what he might whether he actually will be interviewed and what he might say once they sit down. That's a very interesting insight. And when the president would do this, he would have lawyers on either side of him saying, no, sir, don't say that. Yeah, right. That they, I think that right now they're they're in pre-negotiations, right? So can they do written questions? Is it going to be an interview? But you know, can you really imagine Donald Trump being asked something and ask uh, asked a provocative question, right? Did you do this? But sort of with the accusation behind it, and a lawyer saying, you know, sir, don't answer that, and him actually being able to just shut his mouth and sort of let the moment pass. Right. I mean, that his. Right. Like he it seems like that's a moment in which he might sort of just start talking. Certainly he can't do it with reporters, you know, sort of over the advice of of, uh, you know, his own press office. So if I was his lawyer, I would I would not want him to be in a room, you know, in the first place because he's just not a predictable client. David, it does raise the possibility that if you were Mueller, because you're a really smart guy, you'd say, well, why don't I just tweet the questions at you? Well, that would be a pretty good idea, and you know, some of the some of the tweets are likely to come up in some of the questioning because think of the tweets surrounding the dismissal of uh, of the FBI director. You know, at various points, there were a lot of tweets about about Comey that would go to the question of motive. But you know, there's a an interesting que- issue that Susan raises, which is sort of what happens here if you put this man in front of a uh, of a lawyer and he's got the threat of perjury going on. And we have a couple of examples to look back on when he was deposed in a number of cases in New York 
involving real estate disputes and so forth and so on. And while I haven't read any of them in a while, I do remember reading some during the campaign. And they're sort of interesting because he recognizes himself that he is in some jeopardy, that there's the possibility of a perjury charge. And so when asked, you know, why did you claim that such and such a building was, you know, sold out or something like that when you knew that it wasn't, he would talk a little bit about the puffery that goes into being a successful real estate person in New York and basically say this is the kind of stuff and deception and so forth that you do as part of the business. And it would be interesting to see if in the Mueller testimony, he eventually does the same thing about the presidency to say, well, of course I knew these weren't the biggest crowds. But you have to say that kind of stuff because you're building up an aura of being a new and record-breaking president, and it's all just sales. I, I don't know that he would do that, but he did do it as a real estate developer. Yeah, but how could he do that in the Comey context or speaking about Flynn? I, in the Comey context, it's going to be difficult, and I think Comey is where he is most vulnerable because he gave that interview to Lester Holt in which he basically said, the Russia thing is the reason I fired Comey. Yeah, NBC and I don't know Scoop, how, by the way. What is that? NBC Scoop, by the way. An NBC Scoop. <laughs> uh, I, I detect something going on here. I, I, um, and uh, so – if he, since he gave that interview, I don't know how he walks that back right now. And the question for the lawyers is, does that I, – this is, Susan, you jump in here. This is your territory, not mine. But does that indicate – is that evidence of corrupt intent? Susan? Yeah, so I, I mean I don't have the answer. Clearly the, this is Anything about sort of corrupt intent as it relates to the statute, I, I think is just an academic exercise, right? The Trump is not going to get indicted here, right? So sort of, I think at the absolute extremes of what is even remotely plausible, we're looking at Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator, right? And so, yes, I do think that it, um, I think it's important to sort of stay anchored to what the law says and and to continue to evaluate his behavior through sort of that criminal lens. And, and I do think it goes to, you know, a, a corrupt mental state, you know, an improper motive. That said, I don't think that Mueller is, uh, you know, tying himself up in knots about, hey, how am I going to prove the element of corruption in court? You know, I, I think they have got to be doing this investigation, understanding that that's just that's not the way that these things are going to be litigated. It's either going to be sort of referrals to Congress or it's going to be about Jared's mental state or Flynn's mental state or some sort of senior echelon that, that, that that's sort of the closest they're going to come to Trump himself, um, which I just think makes sort of Trump's individual tweets and the things he says potentially less relevant because it's not ultimately going to be used in court. Well, you know, this is a, an, another interesting question. We've only got about seven minutes left here, and we are focusing in this particular episode on the current uh, mood around Trump, the politics, the legal issues, and so forth. And in the next episode this week, we're going to talk about some of the international issues and implications. But, you know, Corey, as I uh, listen um, to Susan, you know, one of the things that I think about is that you like baseball. And one of the reasons Indeed that people— Indeed, I do. 
Yeah, and one of the reasons that people like baseball is there's no clock. The game goes on until somebody wins. Um, and, you know, in some ways, uh, Trump and, and, and the GOP have been operating a little bit like that throughout 2017. But, of course, in politics, there is a clock. And the context of this investigation changes a lot with each day we get closer to the election at the end of this year. And that 11 months from now, it could well be that Donald Trump is looking down the barrel of a Democratic Congress or a Democratic House. And that when he goes and makes a case to Mueller, it may have consequences and ramifications in terms of a very different set of investigations that are going on on the Hill. And that this mood, the shift that could occur just 11 months from now, seems to me to be a very big deal. And it does suggest, and if I were Trump, I would be eager, if I thought I hadn't done anything wrong, to try to get things resolved now. Because once the clock ticks over, I mean, look, we're investigating Hillary Clinton you know, now, you know, you know, you know, years later when it's completely irrelevant, Im- imagine something of urgency and, and, and the Democrats take control back in the Congress. Uh, so, David, I have a couple of reactions to that. First, I feel like we should all raise the glass to the great former Baltimore Orioles skipper Earl Weaver, who said the reason that baseball is the greatest game is because You've got to let a man stand at home plate. You've got to throw the goddamn ball over that goddamn plate and give a man his chance. And that connects to what Susan was saying, which is that the legalities of this are actually going to be adjudicated in a political courtroom, not in a legal courtroom. Or the most important verdicts are actually going to come in a political courtroom, as you're suggesting, David. And so... I think the reason the president's lawyers keep saying this is all just about over is because they would like it as far as possible from the midterm election. And David Sanger's very good insight of that, the way that the president as a realtor was saying, hey, it's just showmanship. There are a lot of Americans who will buy that argument from the president, even if it's about uh, about a lot of kinds of factual questions that good journalism brings to the fore. I think people don't care that much about the technicalities, and they know that the president's talking nonsense a lot of the time. But the thing is, they think all other politicians do the same thing. And so the challenge will be, I think the challenge for conservatives Um, is to say there is objective truth. As we have been saying all along, not everything is relative, and the objective truth really matters, and we're going to hold even our own candidates to that standard. Parenthetically, the Congress is failing failing to do that this last year. Um, And the challenge for Democrats is not to push the legality, not not to push the legality to the point where the politic, where they would seem to be leeching the politics out of it, um, because uh, the politics are going to matter hugely. And I don't. Well, I'd be interested in what other folks think. I'd be surprised if even a Democratic Congress can get this president to an impeachment. 
Well, that's a that's an interesting question. We only have a couple of minutes here, and I do want to turn to what is obviously the most important issue of the week, um, and that is Oprah Winfrey's speech, um, uh, because everybody went completely nuts, and and including, by the way, here in my house, where two years ago my wife um, said to me. Donald Trump is going to win the election, and Oprah Winfrey is the only person in America who could beat him. And I was like, well, look, I'm a professional. You know, let me tell you, neither of those two, <laughs> neither of those two things are going to happen. Does and, raise the interesting question why she's not hosting the podcast. Well, believe me, everybody would prefer everybody would prefer it if she did. I'm definitely the, you know, there are two people in this house, and I'm the second smartest of the group. But but, you know, Evelyn, you, did you watch the Golden Globes last night? I did, and I love Oprah. And do you think Oprah Winfrey is the perfect response to Donald Trump? Or do you think we should stop focusing in on celebrity presidents? You know, what makes her different is that she has heart. And one of the things I read this weekend, I believe, sorry, David, it was in the Washington Post, um, was an op-ed, an opinion piece by a Venezuelan, I think political scientist or, or, or politician. But in any event, he was saying that all of this ranting and raving by Democrats and never Trump Republicans is not going to change anything on the electoral um, grid, if you will. So meaning people who support Trump are not going to be swayed by anything we have to say in opposing Trump. The only thing that's going to com- convince them, he says, based on watching what happened in Venezuela when essentially Chavez was being opposed by people who were saying he he's you know, a, a dictator, he's a demagogue, he's against free speech, he's corrupt, blah, blah. None of these things worked The average Venezuelan people continue to support Chavez, especially the poor people who were actually suffering under him, and that the only thing that will work in the Trump instance, just as it has worked to some extent in Venezuela, is when the opposition politicians show concern for the less fortunate among us. So if we can show that we care, which is something that actually Oprah does really well, if if you can show that you care about people's problems, about their issues. And I mean, Trump kind of pretended to with the coal miners, et cetera. But if if we as Democrats can say we care and we have a solution for you and focus on that rather than on the anti-Trump message, maybe that's the way that we can prevail, whether it's Oprah or some other standard politician. Okay, well, I want to give the last word on this to Susan Hennessy, and that's for two reasons. One, of all of you, Susan is the one who's most tuned in to popular culture. And we know this because she made the reference to the great twice-made movie, When a Stranger Calls, uh, earlier in this episode. Um, but which, Corey which, made the reference to Earl Weaver, which well, you know, no, that's, evokes that's, something from my youth. That's, yeah. that's true, but... But 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 Susan's image was so great, you know, because you could just see John Kelly in his office late one night, you know, the phone rings, the lights are dim, and on it he hears heavy breathing and the voice of Steve Bannon, and it goes, "Have you checked the child? Have you checked the baby?" You know? I do think Susan Hennessy deserved it for the call is coming from inside the house. Yeah, right. Well, that's what I'm saying. And the call, and then he traces the call, and it's coming from inside the house. And then he thinks, "What has Trump done again?" You know. Um, but but I want to give you the last word on Oprah, Susan. 
Yeah, so I, I have sort of two thoughts. One, I, I tend to think that the celebrity presidency is not going to be the answer. I mean, I think it's notable sort of all the people that are, are lauding this as, oh, this amazing idea. Like, do you know Oprah's policy positions on anything that matters to you beyond sort of thinking she's a generic Democrat, right? So um, it's hard to sort of imagine people being truly inspired by someone until you have at least a little bit of flesh around that, um, which makes me think that this is more surface deep. Um, I, I do think that sort of the the outpouring, I mean, I, I watched her speech and, and I thought it was, you know, moving and, and she clearly meant what she said. Um, but sort of maybe I'm just uh, had a different reaction than the majority of other people, but I didn't think it was a, an overwhelmingly powerful speech. And then I think that I see a reaction now that really does seem like Democrats in particular are looking to recapture the feeling that uh, occurred after Barack Obama delivered the DNC keynote in 2004, right? We're not the red states and the blue states. We are the United States. I mean, just that moment of sort of just inspiration and, and connection and sort of unifying the party in, in this really powerful way. And I think that Dems are, are looking over their their sort of aging future. Um, they're getting more and more nervous that nobody is emerging as kind of the clear choice. Um, and so I think that whenever people are looking at last night's speech, which I, I thought was nice, but sort of nothing particularly special, um, I think there's a little bit of sort of a desperation, like maybe they, they, they want to will the magic into happening because, you know, they so desperately need somebody to start unifying behind and because it's scary that it hasn't happened yet. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I thought this speech was pretty moving. I thought the whole display of the show and the, 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 you know, the, the, the shift in the national mood with regard to sexual harassment issues was extremely moving. Um, but I think if there's a lesson, and by the way, it's not just the lesson of Donald Trump, it's also the lesson of Barack Obama, although most people don't want to acknowledge that. It really helps if the president knows something about being president. It really helps if they know how to run the government, if they know how if they know how to do some foreign policy, maybe a little on the side, if they know a few people in town, if they can pick up the phone and make a few things happen. And um, you know, the notion that our billionaire celebrity is better than their billionaire celebrity is just probably not the pattern of a rising United States of America. And David, one but, one, one other just to add on to this that uh, I was just saying this to a, a progressive Democratic friend of mine earlier today. You'd sort of want to set a test, wonderful as the speech was, and it was terrific, uh, and I, I thought Oprah did an astounding job with it. You'd want to set a test, which is that if at any point in the past 12 months you have uttered the words, Donald Trump cannot be president because he has absolutely no experience at governing anything – then that should somehow prohibit you from embracing any other TV star who has had absolutely no governing experience over anything, shouldn't it? Yeah. Well, these are the questions we're left with in the midst of the week that we are facing here. We wish I wish we had time to, to carry on that discussion. Um, I hope you guys uh, in out there in the world of the deep state will continue to do it on your own and that you'll come back in a couple of days and you'll join us for the next episode of Deep State Radio. In the meantime, let me thank Corey Shockey off in the uh, rainy West Coast and uh, David and Susan and Evelyn, who are all uh, in very cold 
um, uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, we'll see you all again soon. And by the way, uh, let me give you a little bit of an update. You know, not only do we have our mugs, which are all coming out, but we will announce on the next show a contest whereby you can win a T-shirt that is emblazoned with the um, you know, two of my best traits are mental stability and, you know, I'm a genius. I forget the exact wording, but the great words of our president um, uh, that you will want to have and and cherish and wear in public uh, in men's and women's sizes. So tune into the next episode. We'll let you know what that contest is as we go. And thank you all to everybody for joining this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.